Uh, let's hear the word of God together from a selection of passages from First and Second Kings. Starting with First Kings 14, 21 through 24. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the, of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now to 1 Kings 22, 41 through 43. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. He walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now to 2 Kings 18, 1 through 7. In the third year of Hoshea, Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Second Kings 22, 9-13 And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahakam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. Second Kings 23, 1-8 and 25. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, 
and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priest, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it all at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the woman, women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This is the word of the Lord. Sound good? That sounds good to me. Well, good morning, Waypoint. Uh, good? My name is Ben Uthi. I'm a pastoral intern here at the church, and this morning I get the privilege of giving the sermon to you guys. And so to begin, I just want to start out by thinking about legacies, because as you saw, we're in the book of First and Second Kings, and there's a lot of kings that are mentioned, uh, and there's a lot of kings that I'm not even covering, that Lawrence and others have covered and will cover. But it's interesting because they all get this, you know, some of them it's like, and he reigned 29 years or whatever. And then he gets a sentence or two. And then we move on to the next one. You know, and it's just fascinating to think about, wow, okay, 29 years and you get two sentences. And that's how we remember. Uh, but that's what's happening in the book of Kings. But also we see it in our day and age. You know, for me, I enjoy sports. So we do this with players. You know, we think, ah, he was a good player, but, you know, he never really won the championship. You know, something like that. And that's, that's the legacy when we think of them. And it's like, that could be 20, 30 years worth of work. <laughs> For that athlete and we just that's all we think of when we think of them or this could be with a business you know we could think oh, it was a good product but it never really adapted to technology you know they, they didn't really adapt with the times and again millions and millions of dollars could have gone into just something that we sum up in a couple sentences but again it's fascinating because it's how it's how we remember things and it's how in particular in our text first and kings it's how the recorders of scripture wanted us to understand who these kings were, what they did, what their influence is, and how we should remember them. 
And so as you can see, I'm covering uh, what we can understand as the good kings of Judah. So there's a lot of kings in the book of First and Second Kings. And in particular, I'm taking the kings from the southern kingdom. And in particular, the ones that they were good. Like they, they have pretty good legacies written about them. There's a lot of kings that have bad legacies. <laughs> but I'm covering the kings that have the good legacies. So pretty much how we're going to do this time is there's eight kings that kind of fall into that camp. Don't worry, six of them will kind of be lumped together. Uh, and then we're going to look at King Hezekiah, who was in the middle, and King Josiah was the last king, which I realized his name isn't mentioned in any of the text I gave you, so sorry. But all of that was King Josiah, okay? Um, but essentially the first kings, they can all be summarized with, we had Jehoshaphat's red, but the same can also be true for King Asa, King Johas, King Amazah, King Azariah, and Jotham. And they all have the same thread of, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, good. Congratulations, you're a good king. But they didn't remove the high places. They all get that same kind of almost like asterisk on their legacy. Yeah, he was pretty good. Didn't remove the high places though. You know, that's, that's kind of how they remember. So to start with, thought obviously it would be good to go. Well, what are the high places? Why is that a big deal? Like, why, why do they kind of have this mark on their legacy, right? Well, the high places first appear, first kings, when Solomon sets them up for his wives. So his wives worshipped foreign gods. She worked, they worshipped idols. And he set up these places for his wives to do that. And then I had read 1 Kings 14, 21 through 24. His son essentially keeps this practice going. Uh, I mean, this practice of building these worship centers so that other gods can be worshipped. Uh, just some brief research I did on this that summarizes well. A high place was a localized worship center dedicated to a god. Lowercase g, though. Important. Worship at these shrines often included making sacrifices, burning incense, holding feasts or festivals. Some contained altars, graven images, and shrines. So that's very simply what these places are. They're pl- a place to worship a foreign god. And a good king, a great king, I guess you might say, who's trying to help his people worship Yahweh, worship the one true God, would have said, we don't need these things. We, we don't need to worship God this way. And he would have gotten rid of them. Well, how do we know that? Let me tell you. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4. I think it should be on the screen for you guys. It says it very clearly. These are the statutes and rules you shall be careful to do. In the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their ash hymn with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods, destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So pretty clear. Don't have to, you know, be a Hebrew scholar to connect the dots there and go, probably should get rid of these high places. So, why spend so much time on this, right? We, we, we could have just kind of glossed over and gone, oh yeah, they were pretty good, but they didn't remove the high places. Well, I always think in preaching, and I think Waypoint would do a good job of this, is I want to help you guys understand the, well, how does that relate to me? Or the, so what? Okay, they didn't remove the high places. So what? Well, I wonder if there's anything like high places in our lives. Obviously, we don't have something like 
that per se, but perhaps it's something in our life that we know the Lord's not pleased with. We know he would have us remove. We just kind of keep it around though. Don't really destroy it. We don't really get it out of our life, even though we know he would want us to. Sound like something we might be doing in 2022, right? We don't call it a high place. But it's this idea we, we can just rationalize, right? Because I, I would imagine this is a great church full of great people. I would imagine most of you are going, okay, if this thing is sinful or if I, it's clearly an idol, I don't want to worship it. I, I want to turn away from it. But I wonder if there's things in our life we just kind of rationalize and go, yeah, you know, like I know I probably shouldn't worship that or I shouldn't be giving that much weight or attention to it. But and you just, I don't know what we do, but we just kind of make excuses in our head. And we just kind of rationalize it. And we go, yeah, but I think it's okay. And again, these kings, they should have gotten rid of them. But for whatever reason, maybe they said, well, I'm not going to worship there. Right? Because they said they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But they were like, ah. But if I get rid of it, maybe some people are going to be angry though. So it's okay. You know, we'll just, we'll, we'll leave it. And there's kind of this rationalizing that goes on. So again, I wonder what it might be for us. What is something in our life that we're looking to, to give us satisfaction, to give us hope, to give us life that isn't God? And we just, we haven't really given him control. Maybe it's a hidden sin in our lives that no one really knows about. And again, we just kind of think we have it under control. We just kind of tell ourselves, nobody knows about it. No one's going to figure it out. It's fine. I got it under control. Maybe it's just a part of your life that you really haven't surrendered over to the Lordship of Christ. Uh, a good example here is, I believe C.S. Lewis is the first one that came up with it. But the idea of you know, Christianity being uh, a metaphor of a house. But we just kind of lock one room of the house and say, God, you're not allowed in the house. You can come in the house and you can you know, mess with whatever you want. But this room, that's off limits. That's my room. You can't have that. And that's, I think, a good picture of this idea of a high place. Just this portion of our lives that again for whatever reason we're going lord you can't have control over that i'm in control so again maybe it's a hidden sin maybe it's something like finances comes to mind right where we can just think hey i worked hard for this this is my money i'm not going to listen to god or the bible or whatever because this is mine right and the list could go on but i think that would i imagine be a popular one for us in our day and age so why are we talking about this? I know this can be scary. It can be hard. You know, this isn't the most, you know, most comfortable way to, I guess, begin the message. You know, you're like, man, this guy's coming in kind of hot, you know, talking about hidden sin. Wow. Um, but again, that's, that's in the text. They didn't remove these high places even though they were supposed to. So why should you? Good question. Hebrews 3.13 should be on the screen. Y'all are doing great. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why we can't allow there to be hidden sin, stuff unturned over to the Lord. Because it hardens our heart to him. It deceives us. And actually verse 12 of this is even scarier. Uh, and it talks about falling away from the living God because you don't do this. So you read verse 12. Wow, I don't want to fall away from the living God. What do I do, author of Hebrews? He goes, well, read the next verse. That's what you do. You need to exhort one another and you need to be vigilant about things that can harden you to fall away from God. On a more positive note, that's a little bit of a negative note, but on a more positive note, I don't have this on the slides. But I think about John 8, 34 and 36, where Jesus says, 34 is, 
Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then verse 36, he says, But whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. So on a positive note, we don't have to give in to the slavery of sin. If you're in Christ, that thing doesn't have a hold on you that you can't get out of. You are free. So yes, there is, again, the negative kind of aspect of you need to destroy the high place. <laughs> you need to get out of that and you need to worship God rightly. But there's also this positive invitation of come into freedom. Come, come into full worship of God without that thing that is holding you back. Because freedom's offered to you if you're in Christ. Those were the pretty good kings. Now we're going to move on to King Hezekiah. And we couldn't get all of Hezekiah's time because there's just a lot that's covered of him. And kind of, you know, how we typically do things here at Waypoint is, let's, let's get the general idea of who that was, how it can apply to us. Because we'd be here all day if we covered all the stuff. But essentially the main thing with Hezekiah that's going on is Assyria is threatening to come and overtake Judah. So there's a warring nation nearby that's coming and saying, we're going to come and we're going to overtake so this is uh, on the slide, 2 Kings 18, 28-31. Then uh, Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Think about that statement. By saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Is that it? Oh, that's it. Great. Um, so Hezekiah was dealing with a real enemy. Like this isn't just kind of some spiritual pie in the sky issue right this is this nation is going to come they're threatening to overtake to kill to enslave what are you going to do you're the leader you're the king what are you going to do so two natural responses right would be well you can surrender to assyria it's an option not a good one but it's an option or you know you can build up an army you know you can get a plan you can go all right what are we going to do? That's not what Hezekiah does. It's not how he responds at all. And I think it's an incredible example for how you and I ought to respond. Because, again, let's, let's put ourselves in his shoe. I know this is a story, and it can be easy for us to kind of hear it as a story. But he was in a situation where he was scared. His life was in danger. And if he's being honest, it probably felt like, God, are, are, are you going to do something? Like, I, I need you to show up in a mighty way or else my people are going to die. And so similarly, before we even go there, I don't think it's, you know, apples to apples for us, clearly. But I wonder if some of us feel like that when we feel, Lord, I'm in a situation where I feel overwhelmed. I feel scared. I feel like I have to make a decision that's really hard. And if I'm being honest, it just doesn't feel like praying or doing things spiritually are going to help. Like, I just kind of need to figure it out. Because that's, that's where Hezekiah was. That's where he was. And I don't know where all of you are at this morning, but I imagine there's some of you that probably feel like that to some degree right now. So what did he do? Well, text says in chapter 19 that he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. So, 
Namely, Hezekiah, he, he sought God and he prayed. And we have this scripture right here, verses 14 through 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. Again, this idea of, hey, Assyria is going to come and overtake you. Okay, great. Uh, and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Next slide. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Wow. So what can we learn from Hezekiah? Again, someone who scared, overwhelmed, big decision, seemed out of control. Well, we can see, and we read earlier, he's commended for his trust in the Lord. And one of the ways he trusts the Lord is through his prayer. I think his prayer serves as an incredible model for us of how we ought to pray. Certainly, it's you know, not like, hey, here are 10 steps on how to pray, you know, the Hezekiah prayer. But I think there are two really important things that we can get out of it. So one, he begins with who God is. In verse 6, 14, he talks about you're enthroned above the cherubim. You're the God of all the kingdoms. You made heaven and earth. So Hezekiah, he's, he's reminding himself, no, this is who God is. Which, I mean, this is a little bit of an interpretation, but it's, why should I fear the king of Assyria when I know the one who made Assyria and the one who made every nation? And the only reason the king of Assyria has got breath in his lungs is because you're giving it to him. Right? Do you see how now all of a sudden he might go in a little bit of, okay, I got some confidence. Okay. Hezekiah doesn't begin with his problem. He begins with God. You see that difference? He doesn't just come in and go, God, this is my problem. Assyria, they're a big deal. Watch out, which, let me be clear, it's, it's okay to have seasons where your prayer is like that. It's okay to just come, say, Lord, I'm, I'm scared. Lord, this is going on, I'm fearful. But do you see what a difference that makes when he goes, Lord, this is who you are. This is not too hard for you. You're sovereign, you're powerful, you're the creator. I got this dude from Assyria talking junk. Are you kidding me? This is who you are, right? And he just, you can sit, he's gonna get some confidence. He knows who he's praying to. And again, I just wonder for our prayer lives, how much that would help if we focus on the Lord and his character and not just, God, this is what's going on. Because it's easy to do that. Easy to do that. And sure, he prays, right? He says, save us, Lord, please. You know, in verse 16, he's like, Assyria has laid waste some nations, Lord. I don't know if you've seen their track record, but it's pretty darn good. And we're next on the list. But he ends it by saying, so that the earth may know that you, O oh Lord, are God alone. Not so that the people think, wow, Hezekiah is a great leader. He figured it out. So that the other nations will look at Judah and go, can you believe what their God did? Who is their God? Who, who do they worship? Did you see how incredible that was? That's what Hezekiah is doing. And he has a very real, very scary circumstance. 
And yet he's saying, God, would you be glorified in this circumstance? Would other people know you because of this circumstance? And God does it. It says that an angel of the Lord comes and wipes out the entire army of Assyria. Hezekiah doesn't do a thing. He, he prays. That's what he does. And God answers his prayer. He, he, he does it. So kind of bringing Hezekiah together and to challenge us and myself included, I think it is far too easy for us in Durham, Chapel Hill, 2022, to just think there are some things that are spiritual and we ought to pray about. And then there's just some life things, you know, that you just got to do, you know, and they're not really that spiritual. So, for instance, for me, I work uh, for a college ministry on UNC's campus. So, you know, if I get connected to a student that doesn't know the Lord, it can be easy for me to go, okay, I should probably pray for them. You know, I, I should be prayerful. I should ask other people to pray. Hopefully their heart's open to hear, have a conversation, whatever. But if Lacey and I get, you know, an unforeseen expense come up, I just go, okay, let me figure it out. Right? Let me pull up my Microsoft Excel spreadsheet where I keep track of our finances. You know, let me pull up our credit card, you know, statement. Let me pull up our bank statement. Let me just, let me just get a plan. Like, we, just, we need to figure this out. And it can be so easy to go, yeah, this is just kind of something you just got to do. And I think it's so easy to do that in our day and age. It's like I have two young kids, and they have these little lunch boxes. I think they're called bento boxes, right? Yeah, bento boxes. Um, and it's like, you know, you put the little sandwich here. You put the grapes here. You put the go-go squeeze here. And, you know, there's these little compartments. And I think we can do that with our spiritual lives. I think we can go, this is kind of my spiritual life, but over here is work. You know, at work, you know, I just work. You know, and this is parenting. I just parent over my own strength. It should be, it should be everywhere. Because is that, is that what Hezekiah did? Did Hezekiah go, I have an army problem. Let me go talk to the army leader. No. He said, I have an army problem. I'm going to the house of the Lord. I'm going to pray. Because that's our only hope. And so again, I'm, I'm talking to myself here. Don't compartmentalize your spiritual life. Don't just go, these are things that I just need to figure out in my own strength, on my own power. These are things maybe I'll give to the Lord. Give it all to him. Trust them with all of your life. Hezekiah did, and it was awesome. Last king we're going to look at is King Josiah, which, again, sorry that his name wasn't mentioned, but that's him. Trust me. Um, the thing that stands out about Josiah is really two things, his reverence for God's word and his obedience to it. So we, we had it read, but he finds this book of the law, excuse me, which most scholars agree is more than likely Deuteronomy. And what does he immediately do? He goes, man, we, we got to figure this thing out. It says he sent people to inquire about it. And then he gathers everyone together to hear it. And then he immediately starts applying it. I mean, Josiah, I think it's about two and a half chapters. And it's the same thing. It's, he goes here and he destroys the high place. He goes there, he destroys the high place. He goes over there, guess what he does? He destroys the high place. And so it's this idea of, okay, he, he heard the word and he's immediately applying it to his life. Because if you remember, where was the clear command to get rid of the high places? Deuteronomy. Good. It was in Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4. So you can see that idea of King Josiah going, hold up, pause, wait a second. Did y'all just hear that? Did, did y'all just hear Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4? Isn't that a high place over there? What are we doing? Somebody grab a sledgehammer, let's go. Right? And, that's, and it's that idea of like, he's like, okay, we're going to get rid of these places because clearly we should. 
Josiah also renews the covenant with the Lord. He holds a Passover, and he gets an amazing legacy verse. His legacy verse, chapter 23, 23, verse 25. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arrive after him. That's a pretty incredible legacy, right? And I I hope you read that and go, man, I hope something like that could be said in my life one day. And I'm here to tell you, well, guess what? He had a reverence for God's word and he obeyed it. That's attainable to everyone in this room, okay? I'm not saying you're going to, you know, be written in the Bible or anything like that. But I'm saying that idea of there's nothing special about him other than those two things, which is encouraging to us. So again, bringing it into our context today, what sort of reverence do we have for the Bible? Again, Josiah's like, man, I need to understand this. I need to get everyone else around me to hear this. Okay, whatever this thing says goes. We're going to do it. I just wonder, how do we, how do we view the Bible? Do, do we give it that sort of weight or authority in our life? This is obviously a big issue in our day and age, but yeah, just the idea of authority. So, for instance, when you come to something in the Bible, maybe that is hard to understand. Or maybe you downright, you would say, I disagree with that. What do you do? Now, I'm not saying we have this kind of blind, naive faith where we're like, I trust everything that's in the Bible, even when it's hard. you know. But I am saying this idea of what authority does it have? Because certainly there are, there are plenty of places in the scripture that they are confusing. It is hard to kind of reconcile. That seems to maybe contradict that. And how could this be true of God's character? There are plenty of places like that. So please don't hear me say, if that's where you are, you know, I'm disappointed in you or something like that. But I am saying there, there, there's a heart that can have this, God, I want to trust your word. <laughs> I want to come to this in faith. I want to have this be the authority of my life. And even if this is hard to understand or I can't wrap my head around it, I want to come in faith seeking to understand it versus saying, I'm right, this is wrong, right? And then, well, guess who the authority is in that equation? It's you, right? So again, what sort of reverence do we give the Bible? And then second, do we obey it? Do we live it out? And again, I know I'm guilty of this. I could... You know, have my time in the morning where I read my Bible. And I'm like, all right, I read my Bible. Cool. And that's nice. Um, But it's meant to be obeyed. It's meant to be lived out. Right? James chapter 1 talks about this idea of don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. And he uses this example in verses 23 through 24 of if someone looked at themselves in the mirror and then left and immediately forgot what they were like, you know, obviously we'd be like, how would you forget? You just looked at yourself in the mirror. And James is like, yeah, that's what you're like if you hear the word but don't do the word. Like, it's that silly. It's that like, how, how, how could you not do that? And again, there are plenty of places in Scripture where guess what? It's going to be hard to live that out. And it might even be downright like, man, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but again, if we give it the reverence it deserves, we come and we say, Lord, I, I want my life to look like this. It may not happen overnight. But I, I want to trust you. I want to live out your word. Just like Josiah, I'm sure there were plenty of people that were like, hello, I like the high places. I, I, I like to worship there. And he was like, again, this isn't in the text. But he's like, well, the Bible would call us to get rid of them. So we're going to get rid of them. Like, I'm sure it wasn't just this clear, easy process. So wrapping up, what can we learn 
from the good kings of Judah. I mean, we were popping around all over the place, right? But what can we learn from them? Well, first, let's not be like the pretty good ones who didn't remove the high places. So let's submit all of our lives to the Lord. Not allow there to be any hidden sin or place of disobedience that, again, we've just rationalized. Or we've just kind of said, I'm just not going to give that over. Second, King Hezekiah, King Josiah, kind of the great kings, what did they do? Well, they trusted God, they prayed, they had a reverence for God's word, and they obeyed it. Nothing spectacular. Again, anyone in this room can do that. And to really wrap up, we've got to tie in King Jesus. Y'all didn't think you were getting out of here without King Jesus, did you? Where do we see Jesus in all of this? Well... High places were something that hindered people from truly worshiping God fully, right? Because they were worshiping idols. Jesus destroys sin and death so that you and I can have a relationship with God. And without that, we, we can't have that relationship. We can't be reconciled to him. So the power of sin and death has been destroyed. Jesus destroyed it so that we can worship God fully. Jesus faces a situation like Hezekiah in the Garden of Gethsemane, does he not? His life's in danger. He's about to be crucified. It's scary. It's overwhelming. He's alone. What does he do? He prays. Not my will be done, but yours, Father. And lastly, John chapter 1 talks about that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you go down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is Jesus. So John describes Jesus as, He is the word incarnate that came and tabernacled is the word among us. So Jesus is the word of God that we're meant to obey. I think about Mark 1.15. What's one of the first things he said? He said, the kingdom of his God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the true king of God's kingdom who doesn't just reign for 29 years or whatever or however long some of these kings reign. He reigns forever and ever. Who died for the people in his kingdom, even when they rebelled, even when they rejected. What does he say? How should we obey? Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he would say. And that invitation is offered to you this morning. If you haven't found yourself in the kingdom, the king's inviting you. Come on into the kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Just pray that things I said were helpful. I uh, pray that people would uh, be blessed by them and that you would help us to live out some of these things. Lord, I, I recognize some of these things I've said, they're not the easiest truths to live out and, and they can be challenging. They can be hard. So just pray that your spirit would be at work and God, there would be even just good follow-up conversations with people in small groups or just people throughout the week on how they can live this out, what this can look like in their life. Thank you for the opportunity to do this, Lord. And proud of this in Jesus' name. Amen.